One of my favorite quotes is that destiny is not a matter of chance, it's a matter of choice. It implies that you can choose your path in life and make the most of your time navigating it. And on balance with an element of favorable circumstance, good health, and a sprinkle of luck, I do believe you have the ability to make things happen versus watching what happens. You might not reach your ultimate goal, but you'll travel so much further by trying to. But what happens when circumstances change drastically and everything's out of your control? What happens when the path you're on is ripped from under your feet and you're forced to flee your country because of persecution or war or violence? Everything you know, your language, your culture, where your doctor works, the hospital, and almost everything you own are swept away, including your dreams. You become a refugee. And whatever your previous stature in life, engineer, an entrepreneur, a farmer, a loving parent, someone retiring to enjoy your final years, it's all painted over. You suddenly become one of many. To the outside world and to the media, refugees don't seem to have individual identities. They're no longer fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters. They're part of this herd. They're migrating. Six million on the move, two million living in a camp, 60 found floating in a boat. And to some, they're also labeled as vernal, helpless, charity cases. If they're allowed to come into our country, they're gonna drain away our health care, our education. They'll take away our jobs. There's no answer for how upside down our world is and why so many people have to flee their countries because of civil wars because they're being attacked, or they're just trying to keep their families alive. But today in Chatter the Matters, there will be no numbers, no labels, only who they are, human beings. And Canada is a better country because we've opened our arms to grandparents and parents, and sons and daughters, and many have come a very long way with little more than a knapsack to build a better and more secure life. And they value something many of us might take for granted. Our freedom, our democracy, and our peace. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Tarek Haddad was a Syrian refugee who arrived in Canada's East Coast on December 2015. He's the founder and CEO of Peace by Chocolate. Tarek was selected by Google as a national hero case and was awarded RBC's Top Immigrant Award and Entrepreneur of the Year in 2020. Tarek Haddad, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much, Tony, for having me. It's a great honor. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your new life in Canada. But first, take me back to your time living in Syria before the Civil War, because I heard an interview where you're talking about Damascus as one of the the epicenters of culture that stood for 5,000 years. So take us back and paint that city and how it was so alive for you growing up. Absolutely, I would love to. You know, Damascus is uh, the most ancient inhabited city um, around the world. Um, goes back to over 15,000 years. I remember, you know, in Damascus, the, where the past, the present, and the future were collaborating to produce that beautiful image of the country that I'm proud to call home. And it is unfortunate really what the war has done to my homeland because all of my memories up until now are not really what you see on the media, are not about the war, are not about leaving home, are not about the disaster that happened in 2011 and after. It was way before, it was the sweet memories that 
uh, for me walking, you know, in the ancient city and smelling the jasmine after the rain in downtown Damascus. Uh, that's really something that you don't see on the news. They don't tell. Uh, they don't tell you how compassionate and generous the people are uh, there are, which is really unfortunate. So yes, for me, Damascus is not only the place that I'm proud to call my home by birth, uh, as I'm proud to call myself a proud Syrian Canadian now, but it is much deeper than that, where Syria has produced such. Uh, amazing concepts for hospitality and generosity in the Middle East for welcoming those who are fleeing wars um, around the region. Interestingly, a lot of people don't know that Syria welcomed uh, Iraqi refugees, Palestinian refugees, Armenian refugees, even refugees from Europe during the Second World War. That's exactly what I remember uh, from from our home in Damascus I, I, in 2006 when the war was happening in Lebanon. Uh, when Lebanese people were fleeing and coming to to Damascus, uh, my grandmother was saying, what can we do? She kept our house door open because she knew that Lebanese refugees are coming overnight. And over four to five families, they came and they stayed in their house. Uh, In 2006, um, during the time when many countries were shutting the doors in front of those refugees who were trying just to have a a safer place to, to call home or to stay in for a month or two, I remember how my family uh, stepped in, and that's just because of the values. So uh, for me, certainly growing up in the city, um, I was born, um, you know, a, a couple of years after my family started the chocolate factory there. And they always correlated between my love for be- uh, medicine, becoming a physician, and my family's passion to make the world a, a happier place. I wanted to ask you this question because I re- it's interesting that your dad was trained to be a civil engineer. That's right. That wasn't his passion. He wanted to become an entrepreneur. How hard is it within your religion? Because it's it, from what I've read and what you've talked about in many interviews, is you're supposed to kind of, you grow up to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer. That's right. And now he's, he's saying to his mother, and then he comes back from a wedding and he says, when people were eating chocolate, they were smiling. And he says to his mother, I want to make chocolate. And she was saying, you're the messiest kid I have. What do you mean you want to make chocolate? How did that all come about? Uh, it, it was an interesting start for, for the family. Yes, absolutely. My father was uh, not you know, uh, trained to be uh, a chocolatier when he graduated from school. He didn't like the idea to become an engineer. He didn't like the idea of that the status quo. He didn't like the projected a path for for life he wanted to create something different so entrepreneurship was that path when my father was saying it's, it's all about being unique and remarkable and it's all about serving a purpose and that purpose was the community and coming up with something new and and creative right imagine how beautiful life would be when we think out uh, outside the box and really turn the opportunities that that we see into uh, a positive impact in, in the community because we believe in something. It did not happen overnight. It took my father years really to learn how to make chocolate after he decided to move on from being a civil engineer. It was something that he became so proud of. Everyone eats chocolate will be happy. No one eats chocolate will be sad. So he was on a mission to make that world a happier place, especially living in the Middle East. And you know, after many decades of instability, people needed hope. And that hope came through brilliant ideas that that entrepreneurs and those game changers brought to the table. I understand because your your mother basically threw him out of the kitchen. He was making such a mess. But over 30 years, you became the second largest chocolate factory exporting across the Middle East. I mean, that's real testament 
to, first of all, your mom believing in, in her son and the sense of having a higher purpose, which I love, which is the sense we're about bringing smiles, not just selling chocolate. Your family grew up in a building. There were 60 of you in it. Every floor was occupied. And you describe family dinners at Saturday nights. It was noisy as crazy. Take us back to that. The beauty of our building in Damascus is that it did not start as 10 floors. My grandparents were on the first floor. They had amazing backyard with fountains and trees of everything you would imagine. You know, the best fruit that you would eat fresh. So it was very welcoming even to the neighbors to come sometimes and just have fun in the backyard. But in our house, that there was that giant room in my grandmother's um, uh, apartment that, that had a giant dinner table to fit all of us. There was a proverb um, that really contributed to that, that we believed in strongly. It says that at, at times of test, family is best. We used to gather on um, Mother's Day in Syria, which we celebrated really in a huge way. We used to bring in some kind of gifts to all the mothers in the family, and they were all hidden. So all the gifts were wrapped, and the mothers would go around and select their gifts very randomly. You can get the gift anything you want. You can give them toothbrush. You can give them a jewelry. Doesn't matter. What mattered is the sense of you know caring and the sense of fun and entertainment and happiness. It was it was sometimes you know um, we went above and beyond really to make sure that the family had absolutely great time, and we still cherish these memories up until today. Dream big, you know. This is a country of big dreams of uh, uh, fair. Uh, path to success, whether if you arrived in the country now or if you arrived here uh, 10 years ago, if you are yet to arrive, always have big plans. And it is your responsibility in the first few days and the first few months to share your ideas and your talents with your community. No one is going to knock on your door and ask you what you are going to do. It is your responsibility to share that first impression and first plan. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is Tarek Hadhad. He's RBC's Immigrant of the Year, Google's Hero of the Year, and as you're certainly learning, a wonderful human being. Now, I understand that your dad just didn't make people happy with his chocolates. He actually was so shameful, he used two boxes of chocolates to convince uh, your mom to marry him. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> How did that work out? Well, it usually doesn't, you know. It just doesn't happen that you give somebody two boxes of chocolate and they ask them to marry you. It was at a time in Damascus when my father opened a shop on the way to the airport. And my mom came by the shop and she opened the door. And she came in and my father was like, um, Hey, my name is Isam. What's your name? My mom looked around and she was like, oh, my name is Shanaz. And just was like, she was in rush because she had to catch a flight. And my dad said, well, uh, what can I get for you today? And uh, my mom said, well, I'm just going to see my family. So anything would be great. My father went to the bag, grabbed two boxes of the best chocolate you would ever imagine. Of dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate covered with, you know, all kinds of Syrian pistachios and hazelnuts and dried cherries and, and jasmine and all the flavors that you would really just think of as mouth-watering. Gave them to my mom and he said, go create extraordinary moments with your family and come back and tell me all about it. I'm not going to get paid for these. 
So she went and she opened the box and there was a note my father inserted in the box that said, my name is Isam. I don't make chocolate. I make happiness. And my mother's heart was certainly melted. You know, that's like the sweetest thing you would really imagine. So she, she came back to see my dad and she bought 10 more boxes of chocolate. And then she became my dad's best customer for six months. And then my parents fell in love and they got married. So I always said, that's how I was. I was born. And you were, the day you were born, I understand your mother said, this son of mine is going to become a doctor. As it turned out, you followed that dream. And I want you to fast forward. You're a fourth year medical student. Everything's going wonderful. And then civil war hit. So take me to 2011. How drastic circumstances changed and so quickly? You know, we just realized during the war that uh, anything could change in a split moment. That's the hardest part of it is that you're not prepared, is that no one tells you what time, you know, you're going to lose that, you're going to have to flee and, and all of that. And the same thing now is happening in Ukraine. And that's really what all the memories I'm seeing now really are reminding me. In 2012 was, uh, you know, the year when um, the war reached Damascus. And my dad came and told us, well, we have to be prepared for the worst. You know, the, the war was going around in the neighborhoods, destroying uh, buildings and people were fleeing the city and we were like, don't know where to go. You know, even if the war reached our neighborhood, we don't know where to go. The ugliest side of human, human beings and what they can do to each other is war, right? There's nothing, nothing more brutal having to live through a time when you are just bombed or when your family is, is kidnapped or went missing or killed or etc. just because you live in the wrong time in the wrong place, right? So for us in Damascus, the war destroyed our house that we were living all together. Um, we stayed in the basement for five nights without electricity, without water. How many people were in the basement? All of us, all the 60 members of my family, we were jammed. We were jammed in a little tiny room because we, we could not stay next to any windows. We were staying in a place where if the building was bombed, at least the pillars would, would protect us. And on the sixth day, we just, everyone in the family decided to to leave because we were thinking, you know what? If you are going to die, we would rather die trying to leave um, and, and save the, the lives of the children and everyone instead of dying in a basement. In circumstances like that, 60 people, no medicine, no food, no water, somebody has to sort of step up and start making decisions because it would be so easy to be paralyzed. Absolutely. And that's really when everyone in the family um, uh, stepped up, anyone who can who can help. My grandmother was certainly the, the top leader. You know, she was the one guiding us. She was the one giving us uh, faith. She was the one giving us hope, telling us that we need to tell our best stories. You know, at, at the hardest times, at the hardest times, you have your grandmother coming to you and telling you a joke, you know, just to make things easier. It's such a gift to have somebody that even during that kind of circumstance would put how people feel ahead of certainly the person that could have complained the most. What a woman she was. Um, how did you escape? Like, how did you go from 60 people in that basement and where did you go? My entire family now are basically scattered in 26 countries around the world. Everyone now is everywhere. You know, a lot of them are in Germany, in Sweden, um, in the US, in Brazil, in Japan, in Malaysia. <laughs> you know, we are we are here in Canada. So imagine Long being together. Dinner table. Exactly. Going from only 2012, 10 years ago, having a dinner table, sharing it with 60 members of your family, now to be scattered around the world. 
It's unbelievable. So right after that uh, night of the ceasefire in 2012, my family decided to stay in Damascus because we thought this is our homeland. We have to make sure we keep making chocolate. You know, that's what we believed in. That's what we knew. That's what we grew up to do. And I was still in med school. By the end of 2012, my father was at the factory. And then 10 minutes after he left, he was bombed by an airstrike. And it was leveled on the ground. Like the entire factory was destroyed in the war. And then three months after, me and my brother, we were targeted by a mortar racket uh, in downtown Damascus. Almost I lost my brother. He lost his consciousness. And then I told everyone, it's not time to do business. Not time to do medicine. This is the time to survive. And then we went to Lebanon. We lost part of our hearts. You know, we lost part of our soul because we knew we couldn't go back to Syria. Do you think at that time when you're living through this, do you think the world abandons you then? You're just focused purely on survival? When you are surviving um, a war, you have completely different mindset to face things, right? Like you do not really think about long term anymore. You don't really know even if you are going to be what you want to be if you reach your goals or not. Uh, The entire thing really uh, changed our mindsets from you know, thriving to surviving, as you mentioned, right? So we we went down to like, are we going to get food tomorrow when we left Syria? It's like, you know, are we going to survive for, for the next day? What's going to happen if we don't cross the border and if we don't get registered with the UN as refugees to restart a full permanent life for ourselves and for the kids who want to go to schools? All of that really changed our focus and our priorities because my t- number one priority at that time was helping my family get out of Syria and then helping them get out of Lebanon. Also helping others, because that's what we did in Lebanon, is we were going around and building uh, primary and secondary healthcare centers and treating people with thalassemia and cancers, helping as much as we can in in refugee camps. I I was going around on a mobile clinic with many organizations, uh, working with the UN and working with WHO. In that mindset, you can either play the role of the victim, or you can either play the role of the victor. We, I don't want to victimize us, right? Because the war is not something we chose. We just wanted to play the role of victors because we knew we survived the war. We knew we did not leave Syria empty. You know, we lost everything, but we did not lose our skills and we did not lose our talents. This is something the war does not kill in you. You're a very prosperous family, and then all of a sudden you're one of many. Do you think it's harder for someone that's come from the trappings of wealth to survive in a refugee camp versus somebody that might have been scratching a life just living on the poverty line? Or does it matter? It's just a question of, as you said, victim versus victor. You would see a sense of equality in a war that you don't see anywhere else. It doesn't matter. And the word refugee doesn't care about you, whether you were wealthy or successful or you just survived or or not. It doesn't care about that. You are in the same bucket as everyone else. And that's a sense of equality that I'm talking about. This is life giving us opportunities to learn from each other and to face consequences and to face circumstances in the same way that anyone else has to. The moment we left Syria, we knew we were like newborn babies because we have to figure everything out, starting everything from scratch. I went uh, to see my mom one time after we left to Lebanon and she was telling me, I'm counting down to death. When I hear that, I'm like, you know, we certainly need to get to a place where we'd be able to restart again. And I believe in the 
how much worthy every human is. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Tarek had had living for three years in a refugee camp, finds out that he's coming to Halifax. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Women-led enterprises are key to Canada's economy, and RBC is helping to accelerate and grow these businesses, sponsoring the RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Awards, a celebration of impact and achievement, and CEO, a radically generous community supporting women working on the world's to-do list. Women-led businesses and the economy matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is a human being who came to Canada with nothing but no interest to take, only to contribute. And he does in so many fronts. I'm honored to stand with him as a citizen of Canada. Trak, take us back to when you found out after three years of being in a refugee camp that you're coming to Canada. How did that all come about? Well, many people don't know actually this, but because uh, I always cherish this memory, the reason why I'm in Canada is because of a kind uh, Lebanese cab driver who told me, you know, I was with him driving from uh, Beirut to Saida, which is around 40 minute drive. And he was telling me all about um, Canada and, you know, Canadian embassy and the scholarship there just to apply and come here. So I applied uh, based on his um, advice and I got a call after uh, one week. After one month, I did an interview and then I learned that the embassy is offering my families uh, another opportunity to come with me. Not only myself, I, you know, I didn't get the scholarship at that time, but then they invited me and my family to get resettled in Canada. And I'm like, are you guys like joking? You know, I've tried really to go anywhere else. I've applied to go to the US or to Portugal or to Germany and no one opened the doors for us. Canada was the only country really that invited us to come here. That day, February 1st in 2015 was the most and biggest turning point in my life. It was a time when I learned that we were invited to go to Canada. And I went to the family and I told them we were going. Um, and they did not expect Canada for sure. You know, when you tell your parents, hey, we're going to immigrate, they're not going to tell you where, you know, they're not going to think about the idea of going 8,000 kilometers far away to to North America and uh, having to return. To the north of North America. Exactly, yes, to the far north here. When when I call, you know, Canada is a country that escaped the Ice Age. You know, we we are such a, a beautiful country here, but uh, I, you know, the first thing you learn about before you come here is about the weather. Canada has really amazing repetition around the world for peacekeeping, for freedom, for human rights, all of that. But then when it comes to you emigrating here, the first thing you would care about is how are you going to survive in minus 20 or minus 30? So your family comes over. Where did you landed in Halifax? I landed first in Toronto and I arrived here in the middle of December. And you wouldn't want to arrive in Canada on December 18th. Trust me, if you are coming from Lebanon, which was plus 25, probably when I left. The thing about me arriving in Canada especially at that time, there was huge support to the idea of opening the doors for refugees and Syrian refugees and Afghan refugees and Iraqis and, you know, people who were coming here to, to restart their lives, but Syrian refugees at that time because there was a campaign. And when I landed at the airport, I was like greeted as if I was the prime minister. Like it was incredible, you know, 
the CBSA guys, the Canadian Border Service Agency officers were coming to me, shaking my hand and telling me, welcome to Canada. And they were just trying to help in any way. I, you know, I went to the hotel that night, knowing that I'm going to stay in Toronto, <laughs> you know, coming from Damascus, you would think that you're going to stay in Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. We call them actually as the immigrants, we call them the MTV, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. And, <laughs> and in Toronto that night, they called me and they told me uh, my flight is to the next day to Halifax. I had no idea where Halifax was. I had no idea where Nova Scotia was. And I Googled Nova Scotia and they Googled Halifax. And I said, what's Halifax? I want to stay in Canada. And you know, they, they just uh, laughed at me and they were like, you're going to stay in Canada? Just um, a two-hour flight. So I was, yeah, I arrived in Halifax that day after and that's when the journey for me started. My family followed me after three weeks. How did they greet you out in the East Coast? Did you get the same sort of rock star welcome? Were they happy to see you? Oh, man. You know, that uh, that day was something else. Um, I think December 19th at Halifax Airport, where the day that sense of belief in humanity again was fully restored. Imagine when you lose all the faith in everything that's happening around the world and you just look for that shine and hope in the ed- at the end of the tunnel and let that light, this is what the people on the East Coast were. They were that light at the end of that tunnel of struggle and suffering and losing hope. They were carrying these signs with my name on it and they were saying, welcome to Canada, Tarek. And they got translators even in Arabic that put out signs in Arabic for me at the airport. And it, they were carrying flowers and they were carrying all of these Canadian flags. And, you know, that's how I felt really that I have arrived to a place that I'm proud to call home by choice. And I saw a little clip of a movie that's, uh, that uh, actors are depicting your family story, but your dad furiously back in the kitchen on a stove where he all started many years ago and uh, making chocolate. And you started selling your chocolate in farmer's markets. That's correct, yes. That's fantastic. Your mom wasn't so sure that the Syrian chocolate and the taste would win over Canadians, but it turns out that they certainly love your chocolate, don't they? Interestingly, the movie is is, um, is absolutely great platform for us to tell our story. It was not a documentary, so there were some dramatic additions to it. But I truly loved the concept, you know, that we have uh, we have put together with uh, Magnetic North, the amazing production company. We were torn apart between what should we focus on now. Like, do we need to keep thinking about helping family members or do we need to rebuild our business here? And we just after one week, we realized that those things go hand in hand. You know, they don't have to be in the way of each other. So we started making chocolate in the home kitchen. That's when we saw the huge support of the community. We are thankful that Canadians really have welcomed us with open arms and the welcome did not end at the airport. And I saw my dad the next morning and he, after a 15-hour flight, he was exhausted. But at the same time, he opened his eyes and was like, son, what are we going to do? I'm like, you just arrived. Can you take a, a break? Like, can you rest? He was like, no, we need to work. I'm like, okay, let's get to work then. Within a few days, we figured out, you know, community has um, supported us to bring some ingredients um, to play with some chocolate in the home kitchen. We went to farmer's market. Uh, there was a line at the farmer's market. 200 people wake up that day on March 15th in 2016 to come and taste the chocolate. I think what mattered at that time was what did the chocolates in the middle of March 2016, a few weeks after we arrived here, 
what did it represent? The representation and the symbolism of those chocolate pieces we sold at the farmer's market that day represented Canada. That's what Canada is all about. Giving a chance and opportunity for those who are fleeing persecution and war to rebuild their lives. And I hope to see this country continuing to do the same thing centuries and centuries from now because we deserve to be a welcoming nation because we are much stronger uh, when we are different. We are much stronger when we are enriched by the diversity of the people who are arriving here, sharing their ideas. And that's what makes us unique. That's what, what makes us unique on the world stage. So right a few months after arriving here, we established a business and we called it Peace by Chocolate. You didn't just establish this business. I mean, next thing in fast forward, Prime Minister Trudeau's giving a, a, a box of Peace by Chocolates to Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker. He's talking about your story to Obama. How did that make your dad feel that that civil engineer from many years ago who built this prosperous chocolate factory comes to Canada with almost nothing. And next thing you know, two of the most important people, certainly in North America and certainly world-renowned, are talking about your story. Those moments were, were unbelievable, you know. That time was special. You know, we were watching the news, sitting, and here it is, Prime Minister of the United Nations. That's great. Let's listen. He was talking at the UN there, and we see Barack Obama, President Barack Obama sitting there, Angela Merkel, and all the leaders of the G20. Listening to the prime minister talking, that's awesome. You know, beautiful speech in the beginning. And then he was, he starts talking about us. And then my dad was like, what is he saying? You know, my, my dad and my mother at that time, they were still learning the language. And they didn't know. I was translating for them. I'm like, he's talking about us. It was really phenomenal to, to see that the story has made it to the UN and getting that support from world leaders uh, that day. We actually... I remember didn't sleep for like at least two or three nights afterwards because the phone did not stop. You know, we were getting messages and tweets and the support from all over the country. Then uh, the prime minister went to the Congress in 2019 after the Raptors won the NBA championship. Even though we won, but we still have gifted the Americans something. <laughs> so because we are Canadians, right? So... <laughs> Yes, he gifted her uh, our peace bars uh, that uh, teach people how to say peace in different languages. Um, Canadians are gracious in defeat and even more gracious in victory. I put together a little bit of Raptors swag. I don't expect you to wear it, but uh, the We the North uh, and Toronto stuff. And I also wanted to include uh, Peace by Chocolate is a uh, company uh, in Antigonish, Nova Scotia that was started by a family of Syrian refugees who were uh, chocolatiers back home and they are now employing uh, lots of Canadians as they continue to accept. So uh, it is, uh, I look forward to you uh, discovering, even though you have some of the best chocolate in the world in Girardelli, uh, Peace by Chocolate is something Canada is very proud of. Peace by Chocolate sounds like a international agreement. <laughs> Loving my conversation with Tarak had it had on so many fronts. Love of family, love of making people happy and smile, the love of Canada. First of all, Tarak, you're now a Canadian citizen. How does it feel? Uh, I feel that um, I belong. I feel that this is the biggest honor of my life. You know, this country was truly built on a broad range of people, and, um, you know, those who come here from different nationalities. 
and it continues to, to, to thrive, not in spite of, but certainly because of our differences. So, And how did it feel to vote for the first time? I reflected on so much because I know how many millions of people have died for that moment in their homelands and for Syrians who died. We are a country that did not only welcome me as, as a Syrian refugee in 2015, but really told me that, hey, you know, you are a Canadian, whether you have a, the citizenship or not. A few years after I got the citizenship, I had fully the right to, to vote finally. I was reflecting on us being a nation of respect, and that respect of dignity is something I would not trade for anything else because I know exactly how awful it can get, you know, if you lose that sense of respect for, for your dignity as a human being. And we are a nation not only of respect, but of peace, of fairness, of inclusion, of democracy. We are a nation of compassion. And we are a nation of kindness and empathy. You're very successful now as a speaker. I'm, you must be one of the busiest people in Canada because you have so many people asking about. <laughs> what, what do you talk about? Uh, what do you want the audience? Not so much what do you talk about when they leave, and they go and sit around that dining room table that night. Maybe it's Saturday night, and they've gathered their family around, and they talk about your speech. What are you hoping that they'll take away? Well, from I hope that they go and tell their kids how proud they are to be Canadians. When I tell them a story about our survival or I tell them a story about entrepreneurship or tell them, teach them about techniques about you know our, our startups and the challenges and, and everything, whether it's a technical speech or presentation, whether it's a storytelling speech, what matters to me really is that people reflect on me as a human being telling them something uh, and, and being on a stage and having that platform, which I'm so grateful for. So grateful to have a voice. I'm I'm so grateful that people are are willing to listen to me, and I don't I don't take that for granted. And I really really hope that people are always reflecting on on the power of positivity and, and goodness in in the world right now when they look at at Canada. Although everything in the world right now is telling you the opposite, don't lose that faith. Don't lose that hope that we are an absolutely um, incredible countries and. Uh, you know, when I became a Canadian citizen, I always said that I did not just sign up for the country's excellence. I also owned its mistakes and failures. That's why we are creating campaigns. That's why we are trying to change mindsets. That's why we are teaching people the true values of, of peace. Talking about how peace can be lost in a, in a blink of an eye and what we need to do to protect it. We were on the verge of many crises, you know, during the pandemic or before or after. And now we have a lot of, you know, foreign policy leaders in the country really trying to deal with the crisis in Ukraine. But thinking about what needs to be done to protect our, our peaceful communication interactions between each other as Canadians is very noble. Trek, I always end my show with the three things that I've learned and the first one is the smell of jasmine after the rain, how poetic you are, how you frame memories of a city that will never be the what it was. And you frame it in such vivid detail that I think it's a great lesson for all of us to, to create those metaphors, to create that magic, because I think treasuring things in the past is so important. The second one is the sense of I had a choice. I could be either the victim or the victor is such a powerful lesson in life. Uh, because our circumstances are always changing. 
And I think it's that attitude, and sometimes it's health, it's sometimes you're hit with a sledgehammer that nobody can get up with. But more often than not, I think by putting the switch on and saying, I am going to be within these circumstances, make the most of it, do the most, I think is is terrific. And the third thing is just your absolute love, this roaring love of family that began at your grandmother's table that you kept building on as more people joined the family. Yes, a time of test, family is best. And you have been tested as a family. And you stand here, my friend, I am so honored that Canada was lucky enough, fortunate enough to have this family arrive. I, I hope one day that your entire family gets together for a massive reunion somewhere in the world. And maybe you can convince a few more to come over and bear our minus 20 winters because you are what this country is all about, a wonderful box of chocolates and inside each one, as Forrest Gump said, you know, each one is, you never know what you're gonna get until you bite inside. Well, you are my friend, something very special. Thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. My, my pleasure, thank you very much for having me. Joining the show now is Colin Krulicki. He's the Vice President of Business Markets, Atlantic Canada at RBC. Colin, welcome. Hi there. So tell me a little bit about what you do for the Atlantic Canada business community. Sure, Tony. Uh, I lead a, a team of business account managers who work with small business owners across Atlantic Canada. Our goal is to be a, a trusted strategic advisor to our small business clients, which means building relationships, understanding their business, understanding their growth, their needs, well beyond the context of account services, deposits, and lending. Tarek has sort of wins his doubleheader. He becomes one of the 25 recipients of RBC's Top Immigrant Award, but he also wins RBC's Entrepreneur Award. What does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? And why do you think Tarek had that, uh, was given those accolades? I think it always starts with great ideas uh, and the ability to move them forward. Things like tenacity and strength, uh, vision, humility, hard work, probably a lot of hard work. And to be a top entrepreneur means giving back and making your community a priority. It used to be the MTV, the big cities, that's where the jobs were. Now it seems to be completely turned upside down that with digital nomads, remote working, uh, there's some people that are fortunate enough to choose uh, to find a place where they can not only work, but they want to create a family. Is that playing to Atlantic Canada's advantage now that because of everything you offer, not only new immigrants, but just uh, Canadians that might be looking for a different way of life. We have a highly skilled, educated workforce here. We have hard workers across all four provinces. I think we offer uh, less stress and great quality of life. Things that are important to people, fresh air, access to the ocean, uh, nature in general, but we also balance that with phenomenal health care and even solid internet capabilities and infrastructure. Colin, when we think of RBC, we think of a big bank, but it's a bank made up of a lot of passionate personalities. Why are you in this business? What does it mean to you? You know, I get caught up in their passion. I get caught up in their story, their creativity, their resiliency. I find their energies inspiring and they are the growth engine for the country. You know, at RBC, we talk about collective ambition, which is helping clients thrive and communities prosper. And I can't imagine uh, a better way to do this than helping small business owners. I get a chance to do this across four provinces uh, with an incredible team of RBCers uh, that share that passion as well. So uh, for me, it's, re it's very exciting. You know, it's interesting how this world with change always comes opportunity. He certainly found his opportunity in Atlantic Canada, and I appreciate the opportunity to having you join me on uh, Chatter That Matters. 
Thanks, Tony, very much. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.